All right, uh, Isaiah chapter 49, beginning in verse 1. If you want to open uh, your Bibles there, and our pew Bibles, it's page 609. 609? Isaiah 49. Today, Isaiah speaks to his ancient people who are despairing in exile in Babylon. Commentators describe their condition as despondency. Despondency is a state of low spirits caused by loss of hope or courage. It is characterized by feelings of sadness, gloom, and a sense of hopelessness or or despair. People experiencing despondency may feel discouraged, disheartened, and lacking in motivation or, or energy. Let me ask you, What is life like for you when you experience despondency? Maybe your heart was broken over a failed relationship. Maybe your career is at a dead end. What you thought you would be and what you thought you would achieve has become like sand between your fingers. And there's no way to go back to the place where you had hope in a prosperous future. For you, the saying is oh so true. You can't go home again. The tendency we have as as God's people is that when despondency weighs upon us, we become skeptical. Skeptical, 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 and in the goodness and in the power of God. Skeptical that anything can really restore us to a place of deep contentment. For even if you escape to a better day, there's always the haunting memories, right? Today, Isaiah points us to God's answer for all the gloom and despondency that his people experience in this world. In the book of Isaiah, there are four what we call servant songs. We've already covered one. They present a mysterious, faithful hero who fulfills all of God's plans for his people. Just who could that be? Today, Isaiah presents us with a second servant song, and in it, he shows us Jesus, our divine liberator, God's faithful hero who steps into the land of deep darkness and gloom and shines the light of peace and comfort and eternal glory. And he is not the consolation prize, for he alone can deliver you from despondency into deep joy. So, our proposition this morning is this, if you're taking notes. Because Christ alone truly liberates us, we must attach our happiness to him. We will look at this under three headings. First, the servant's twofold task. Then, the servant's worldwide success. And then, the servant's liberating power. Before we begin in earnest, let's pray. Father, we do confess that when trials befall us, when life tends to feel like one endless grind after another, we tend to be skeptical, we tend to feel that you are not there, that your arm is not long enough to stretch down to us, to comfort us and deliver us. Help us to see that that is not true, that you are the good and faithful God, the God who does discipline his children, as we need it, but you're also there with us. We thank you that in Christ Jesus, we've been set free. We are at liberty. 
So lead us, Lord Jesus, by your spirit in this hour, we pray. Amen. So the first point, the servant's twofold task. And the big idea here is this. The glorious servant of the Lord is called to preach salvation, not just to the nation in exile, but to the entire world. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant. Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Some observations first. The servant will be equipped as a prophet. That's what the verse 2 describes. He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. <clears throat> the servant brings the voice of God to this earth. And whereas Cyrus, remember him, the Persian king who was appointed by God to liberate Israel one day with a bloody sword and arrows, not so the servant of the Lord. The servant's weapon is the very word of God in the liberating gospel that he gives us. And when Christ came, he was rejected by most of the nation, as we know, because he was not the bloody warrior Messiah that they wanted and what they were looking for. But God's salvation comes through the word of the gospel of his son. It liberates us from our greatest bondage, our bondage to sin. This last week I had lunch with uh, a Christian, um, someone who just started coming to our church and I just wanted to get to know the person and we had lunch and he shared his testimony, how he came to faith in Christ. And he shared how in his early 20s, he and his roommate got high every day, nighttime, daytime, all the time. The drugs held him in bondage. But then after over a year, his roommate started sharing the gospel with him. It's like his roommate had maybe been to church before, or maybe his parents were Christian or something. He started sharing the promises of the gospel. And this man heard the word of the gospel from his drug-addicted roommate, and he came to believe. That very day, Jesus liberated from the drug addictions. He told me, from that day on, I never did drugs again. This shouldn't surprise us. As Jesus said, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. 
But sadly, the world longs for freedom by way of career success or happy marriages or fun families. But our greatest need is to be set free through the liberating word of the servant of God, Jesus Christ. The next subpoint is we look at how Christ sets us free. Verse 3 presents us what looks like a problem. It reads, And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, today, if you ask um, a, a, a Jewish person, ask their rabbi, Hey, is this Jesus in the, uh, in, is he the, the servant here in these servant songs? And I, I know this because I've talked to Jewish people and they've asked their rabbi. And, they, and the rabbi's response is, no, 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 no. Uh, it's the nation Israel that is the servant. And it kind of seems that way in our text. You are my servant Israel, whom I will be glorified. But that cannot be true. Why? Well, Because in verses 5 and 6, the servant has been given a task to restore Israel and gather back the nation. And so the problem with the servant being the nation is this. How can Israel... Save Israel. As Christians, we know, how can a person save himself? It's impossible. So, the servant is one person. The finely polished arrow hidden in God's quiver has been shot into this world now. He's come into human history, and we know his name. His name is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the only liberator of man. And see, here's how Jesus the servant can be called Israel the nation. When Jesus walked this earth, he epitomized true and faithful Israel. He was in their place. He represented them in the most perfect way. Jesus lived the life that the nation should have lived. And he died the death that the nation deserved. The innocent lamb led to slaughter for the nation's sins. That's the fourth servant song, by the way. So that God can say in verse 3, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Now when Jesus did come to serve, his earthly mission did not look like a glorious triumph. That's what we pick up in in verse 4. It seems as if the servant's been rejected. But I, here's the servant speaking, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet, okay, he's still faithful. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense, my reward with my God. Jesus came to save and they rejected him. Only a small remnant when Jesus walked the earth, a remnant of Israel came to believe. To most, it would not look like a mighty victory, but it was because Jesus, the true Israelite, did not falter. Though he spent himself by giving his life, he surely knew his recompense, his reward awaited him with God the Father. As a letter to the Hebrews describes, Jesus saw the joy before him, and therefore he endured the cross and is now seated where? At the right hand of God the Father. So it's not failure, it really is a worldwide success. In verse 6, God says restoring the remnant of Israel isn't enough, and we should rejoice over this. You will save to the end of the earth, is what he says. 
verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It, it's, it's too light a thing. It's not enough. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Most of us here aren't Jewish by background. Some of us are. We've come to faith. Most of us are we're the Gentiles. We're the ends of the earth. We're the ones who have been reached by Jesus. The, that very promise is inscripturated in Isaiah right here. God's plan for his son, the servant, is for salvation, for liberation, to reach the end of the earth. Jesus is the light of the nation. As Hannah Fay read earlier from John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Talk about liberation. So the servant has a twofold task, restoring the remnant of Israel and being God's means for salvation to reach the ends of the earth. Next, we look at the servant's worldwide success. You know, we see here that the servant succeeds greatly, even though he's despised by many. Verse 7 describes the unwelcomed and yet welcomed salvation of God to save his people. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. But then we read this. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Did you catch the contrasting reactions to Jesus? He is the one who's deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. And that certainly describes how Jesus was received back then and how he is received to this very day. Jesus came as a humble servant. He was meek and mild. He spoke of repentance and the Godward life. And the people in Jesus' day deeply despised him, so much so that they crucified him. And yet the outcome is seemingly contradictory. Kings shall see and arise, and they shall bow down to Christ. Ray Ortland Jr. summarizes this with these words. Listen, Christ's strategy is not to overwhelm the arrogance of the world with even more formidable arrogance like every other conqueror, but to empty himself and take the form of a servant. This is the way of God. Humiliation, then vindication. In verses 8 through 12, the true worth of the servant of the Lord shines forth in his influence on people. They joyfully flock to him from all around the world. And here God addresses the servant. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out to those who are in darkness. Appear. They shall feed along the ways. On the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, 
Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them, and I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Remember the context, right, of, of Isaiah here. The, the Messiah, servant of the Lord, is being shown against the backdrop of Jewish exiles in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. How God will liberate them and save them back then is how Jesus will save us and liberate us today. It was then and is today a call of liberation. Come out to those who are in darkness. Appear. God has given us his son, the servant of the Lord, as a covenant to the people. Though God's people fail, that's you and I, we fail often in our covenant obligations to our Heavenly Father, to our Lord. Christ has carried us. He has, as the text says, pity on those he leads. He is our faithful covenant keeper for us. Because of this, he has set us free. Remember the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper. This cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew he was living the covenant you and I should have lived, and we want to live, but we failed to live. He lived it for us. Listen, Jesus is serious about saving you. Saving you with a love that just cannot be undone. And this means that you and I, of all people on earth, of all the people on the earth, we should be the most happiest. <laughs> God has proved to us through the suffering servant, his son, just how magnificent his love is for us. Nothing in heaven on earth can separate us from the love of God given in, to us in Christ Jesus. And so verse 13 is so appropriate here. It, what we see here is, is God's liberation is so marvelous that it calls for Cosmic celebration, verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. The people of God are so deeply comforted by the love of God, they break forth in praise. And so too all creation have Romans 8 in mind here. That is how glorious is the liberation God brings for his people. Christian, let us be a people who rejoice with great delight in the liberating love of God. But then how do the people in the 6th century B.C. respond? That's what we'll see in our last point. We will see the servant's liberating power, but the first sub-point is this, the despondency of the people. 
Verse 14, 14 seems so out of place in following this cosmic delight and rejoicing of verse 13. But here's what we read. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My God has forgotten me. Holy cow, the despondency. The Lord has shown that he pursues us with such a satisfying love, a love so deep that nothing can separate us from God. And the people mumble, the Lord has forsaken, he's forgotten me. You know, we all should be amazed, as well as convicted, by how gloomy our lives tend to be. God has liberated us and he has brought us into the glorious kingdom of his son. God is eager to satisfy all of our holy longings. Do you believe that? He has surely delivered us into his eternal kingdom and yet we can be so impossible to please as his children. And it's true. So many Christians find it so hard to be happy, myself included. God has given us every reason to rejoice, and yet we live with glass half-empty lives. But see, the liberation that Christ gives us is so marvelous. As King David said, remember, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Do you see this tendency in your own life to Mumble with your lips when you have every reason to rejoice. Confoundingly, our hearts that should be tambourines in the hands of God sound more like rocks thrown in bitterness into a dry creek bed, right? Now, what should be done? Better yet, what does God do? In the remaining verses, God responds to his people's despondency with more grace and provision. Here we see the mindful Lord. Verses 15 through 21, we see the mindfulness of the Lord. I'm just going to read verses 15 through 16, all right? Here we go. Here's what God is saying to his people. Can a woman forget her nursing child? No. No that she should have no compassion on the son in her womb? No. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. In this final section, it's multiple chapters. Isaiah, God is addressing Zion. It's just another name for Jerusalem. Zion is the gathered in people of God. The, the noun is in a feminine form. Lady Zion, the mother of all God's people. Today we call her the church. No longer are the people of God a nation gathered in, but we are the church, a people scattered. This is God's design. We are the church sent into the world. Now, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. It's a compound word, ek, meaning out, 
placia from the verb kaleo, which means to call. We are literally the called out ones of God. When Christ calls you, he liberates you into his body, the church. And now here in our text, God is saying he will never abandon his family. That's what verse 16 is all about. It's meant to give you kind of a visual proof or illustration. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm, palms of my hand. I'm sure you've all seen someone with a tattoo on their body, which leaves you with no doubt that someone dear to them has died. A face of a son or a daughter, a mother, a father, brother, or sister is like tattooed on the arm, right, with a, with a date under it. They are so mindful of the memory of that person that they engrave them on their body. Listen, this is what God has done for his church. He has engraved her on the palms of his hands. That's what he's saying. That's how dear we are to him. That's how mindful he is of us. In addition to being mindful of us, Isaiah shows us the triumph of the servant of the Lord in verses 22 through 26. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring forth your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. There's a lot in there. Can't cover it all. But Isaiah here depicts the gospel triumphing throughout the entire earth. Obviously, some of the images are still yet to come when he returns to judge. But for now, more and more people will receive Christ's call to come. Come to the blessing of this world's spiritual mother, the church. You know, I know many Christians, I met them over the years, who, who think the church only plays a minor, insignificant role in the great narrative of redemption. Nothing could be further from the truth. Listen, follow this logic. If there is no salvation apart from Christ, which is true, and if the church is the body of Christ, which is true, then you cannot be saved apart from the body, Christ and his church. As Cyprian, the third century AD Bishop of Carthage said, no one can have God as father who does not have the church for his mother. Now, Christians, we are right to lament how many, many ways people in the church have failed to live out their calling honorably. Perhaps you've even been 
injured by a church or people in a church. But that being said, she, the church, is the means by which God's blessings flow into this world. And that is what this passage is saying. God will bring from around the world people who were once separated but who are now brothers and sisters, uh, foster fathers and mothers. Isn't that often what a church is like? New brothers, new sisters, foster moms, foster dads. If you're not part of a church, you're missing out on that. You think you don't need it. You do. You need to be someone's foster child so that at some point you could be someone's foster dad or foster mom. You belong to Christ's body. You are part of his church. That's his mission for this world is that more people would join. Now, that is what this passage is saying. God will bring from around the world people who were once separated but who are now your brothers and sisters. And this is happening all around the world through missions. We have a reach team here at Grace Church, right? We're reaching our neighbors here on the East End. We're hosting a Christian Explored class next month. And, and we're spreading the gospel Throughout the world, we're planting churches on Long Island and in China and in Kurdistan. I'm going to Kurdistan in a month, uh, taking Adriana with me. There we go. You ready? Got your passport? All right. My daughter, Grace, about 10 of us are going there. We are planting churches in northern Iraq because the church is the means by which people hear the message of salvation. My friends, we are living out the triumph of the Lord through his beloved church. He sets his captives free, and he welcomes them in, even people in far-off northern Iraq. My friends, the people in Isaiah's day desperately needed to see from this perspective, and so to us. God's people often live demoralized lives, too demoralized to even think that their names are written upon God's hands. You know, for some Christians, life has become so stifling that they themselves cannot even look up to seek God's comfort. Have you ever been there? And so what does God do for them? More grace. That is what we see in our last section. Here we see that our God is the powerful Lord of grace, Chapter 50, verses 1 through 3. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? In other words, you don't have one. I've not sent you away, nation. Or which of my creditors is it to which I have sold you? I've not sold you off. I don't know anybody. Why are you in exile? Here we go. Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgression your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth they're covering. Let me help us try to understand these words. God is challenging his exiles to think things through. They feel abandoned. 
That is what they said earlier in verse 14. The Lord has forsaken me. I hear Eeyore's voice here. My Lord has forgotten me. They feel abandoned, but they are not. They are being disciplined. Now, being disciplined and being abandoned feel the same. But they're worlds apart. Unloved orphans, they are abandoned. Loved children of God, they are disciplined. As we read in Hebrews 12, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines who? The ones he loves and chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. Listen, if you are in Christ Jesus, then God is your father. And because he loves you, he will discipline you. That is, he will allow difficult circumstances into your life that cause you to see rightly. But as you endure this loss of work or loss of relationship or physical pain or lasting illness, you must not think as an orphan that God has abandoned you. No, he is disciplining you because he loves you so much. There is something he wants you to learn so that you love God and trust him more and more. So do not confuse that feeling of being abandoned with the feeling of being disciplined in love. But there are times, right, when we're just so despondent that God seems completely out of the picture. And the question we have is, God, are you not capable of reaching down to help me right now? Look where Isaiah places the blame. Is my hand shortened? Oh, oh, can't reach you. Is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? Or, or have I no power to deliver? Rhetorical question. Meant for you to say, yeah, you got it. So the answer is no. God's arm of love is more than long enough to reach into your despondency. He has the power to deliver you into his joy. So then when we're experiencing gloom in life, when we feel like God is distanced, we need to know that God is both ready and willing to meet us with his saving power. Sometimes just having that perspective changes so much. But we need more. What else do we need? We need what the Lord Jesus calls a childlike faith. You know, as we get older, we're like, we're like so nitpicky, right? We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've been, we've been abused and neglected so long. We're just like, we doubt everything, right? But children, they're like, okay, you know. Childlike faith, an uncomplicated faith. A faith that's not restrained by grudges against God nor calculating God's commitment or lack thereof with every difficult circumstance. So then, my friend, let us have a childlike, trusting faith. Also, Christian, we need to understand God's goals for us. We assume that God wants us to be happy, and he does. 
But we think our happiness is found in our travels or in our work or in our relationships or retirement accounts or possessions. But listen, God loves you too much for him to allow you to find happiness in secondary causes. See, Christian, God cares more about your happiness than you do. Do you believe that? Which is why he disciplines you. He knows that as good as a career is, or a family, or your health, nothing compares with the happiness that simply comes from setting your hope on the happiness that God alone can give. And so, my friends, God's discipline is not meant to lead you into despondency. It's meant to lead you into dependency. And so when you feel like life has, has handed you great cause for self-pity, that God's arm is, of course, it's just too short for him to care, remind yourself God is using the difficult times in your life to redirect your heart back to him. He cares too much for you. He's trying to liberate you from slavery to lesser joys so that your heart will come alive with, with joy and happiness and the only thing that can truly satisfy, which is God himself. Jesus, the servant of God, came to liberate you and in love redirect your heart's affection. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed to be the happiest version of yourself that you could ever be, no matter what comes your way. And so, my friends, because Christ alone truly liberates us, we must attach our happiness to him. Let's pray. You know, it, it's so simple, right? right? It makes so much sense. God made us. We're made in his image. We've fallen away. God comes to show us true happiness. We, we know that, and yet, gosh, we try to find happiness in so many other places, and we, we are prone to think that we have been orphaned and abandoned instead of being lovingly disciplined. May we see in a new light. Jesus, would you liberate us from such thoughts and actions and attitudes? Liberate us, free us to be the happy people in you that you, you alone can make us to be. We need more of you, not less. We need to follow after you more, not less. And we need more of your grace, not less. Let's pray. In Jesus' name we praise you. Amen.